Hey, I'm Roberta Blevins, and this is Life After MLM, a podcast where we work to end the stigma of failure in an industry systemically designed for you to fail. Join us as we dive into the real-life stories of survivors, experts, and advocates as we debunk the common myths and fallacies of cults, frauds, scams, and multi-level marketing. Join us all month for cult stories, education, and experiences. Don't be culty, huns. Hey, Hunbots and Hun Bros. I hope you had a safe and lovely Halloween. Welcome to November. We are switching the focus from true crime to cults. And I know that this is kind of just a cult podcast in general because we talk about cults a lot. But this month we have two deep focuses. We are going to be continuing the conversation into Christian nationalism, evangelicalism, and everything that comes along with that. And then the second cult that I'm really doing more of a focus on this month is Scientology. Scientology is the cult that helped me realize I was in a cult. And in the past two, three years, I have met so many Scientology survivors and gotten to hear some really amazing stories. You guys ask me all the time for Scientology stories. And I thought, you know what? Let's make it a focus this November. I am really excited to tell these stories and to bring them to you. And in different bonus episodes, I will be covering some cults that we will be going deeper into next season. And so I wanted to give you some introductory into those. Also, if there's a cult that you want me to cover, please hit me up. Let me know. And if you have any culty stories, and I'm not talking about like being in a cult, although I will take those as well, but having culty experiences and saying, hey, this thing was kind of weird. It rubbed me the wrong way. I'd love to hear those stories as well. Just like October, we're going to have extra bonuses, different stories, different guests coming on and sharing their stories. And I want you to be as involved as you want to be. So if you want to be involved, hit me up. I also wanted to say thank you to all of the incredibly wonderful and positive feedback from the last episode with Emily Ragland. I know it was a very heavy episode, and I am so glad that so many of you listened and connected with it. It was a very special episode for Emily. And I'm just so proud of Emily, and I was so happy that I was able to help her tell her story. And so, since the last episode was so heavy, this episode is incredibly light. We do talk about heavy topics. We talk about Christian nationalism and purity culture and politics, but it is with April LaJoy, who is a literal joy and is so funny. I think you're really going to love this episode. A lot of people have been asking me to reach out and talk to her. And so I hope those of you that asked are feeling right now that this is the crossover episode that you've been waiting for. Please enjoy this episode. Enjoy the new music for November. Enjoy all of the fun stuff that we have this month. And I will see you back here on Sunday. Welcome back to another episode of Life After MLM. I'm so excited. We're talking more about all of the things we love to talk about, purity culture, evangelicalism, you know, all the things. And today's guest is so special. I would love to welcome to the show, April LaJoy. Hi, how are you? Hello. Hi. I'm good. 
<laughs> Good. I'm really excited to talk to you. We did the rundown before the show and I'm just, we're going to get into it today. First of all, I just want to say I found you, I don't know where, on Instagram or TikTok or something. I fell in love with you. You are so funny, <laughs> so hilarious. If you guys like evangelical humor, all kind, I mean, it's just, it's all of the spaces we talk about. It is so funny. You have to follow. You have to. Uh-huh. It was like instant. I was like, yes, follow, done. This was easy. This was the easiest decision <laughs> I made today. Oh, thank you. We're going to talk about all of that, but what inspired you to even hop on the internet and start making these types of videos? Sure. I mean, the pandemic. The great awakening. Yeah, it was less an inspiration and more boredom, I guess. It was like, oh, what could I do? I can download this teenage dancing app that all the kids are talking about. So yeah, it was 2020. And originally, I actually started making like mom humor videos, like with kids and our family and stuff. And then I made one that was more political in nature. And it went like super viral. And I was like, oh, there's a thing here. Then I started doing more like deconstruction and found like a whole community of people that were kind of going through the same thing I was. And so it's like, oh, well, I'd rather laugh about this really traumatic thing than cry about it. So that's what we're going to (laughs) do. I always say if we don't laugh, we cry. So you are in good company here. So let's talk about before all of this, your upbringing and you were an evangelical Christian. Yes, very much so. Let's talk about that. Okay. How how far back do you want me to go? (laughs) In the beginning. (laughs) In the beginning, there was April. Yeah. Well, I'll just say generically speaking, or generally, I was a pastor's kid. Okay. And my dad was a traveling evangelist, and my grandfather was a pastor of a large church in Dallas. This was like 80s and 90s. So, and the church was like 4,000 members, which was really, that was like before you had all the mega churches that you have. So it was big. Pretty impressive. Yeah. For the time when you're a kid, you don't think anything of it. This is like, this is just normal. So yeah, I grew up a Peter's kid. I was homeschooled through middle school because we traveled. We went all over the world. My dad preached. My mom sang. Me and my brothers sang. We were like a little bit like the Partridge family for a hot minute. And yeah, we were very evangelical, like trying to win souls all the places that we went witnessing, like personal witnessing too, not just like inviting people to church. Like we'd go door to door witnessing and knock on people's doors and kind of like for MLMs, but for Jesus, like just Jesus, (laughs) you know, like you don't have to buy anything, you know, maybe tithe if you end up coming to church, but not mandatory. But yeah, so I did all of that from like really young, like I was probably telling people that Jesus loved, like I was telling strangers that Jesus loved them, like before I knew my ABCs. Wow. So, yeah. Wow, you are a good little soldier. I was quite the soldier. We sang that song, like literally me and my brother sang that song in church a lot. What, what does it go? I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never zoom over the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. And then you do a whole march. <laughs> oh I still remember it clearly. <laughs> That was a treat. That was a treat. Yeah, you're so welcome for that. Wow. (laughs) So young. Yeah. I remember being a kid and having people come to the door and proselytize for Jesus. Oh, it might have been us. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You traveled. It might have been. (laughs) Yeah. 
Wow. Yeah. I do remember that time. I don't think it happens nearly as much as it used to now. Yeah. But I do remember a day. I think we would be like the Bible sellers are here. Cause like, I don't even think we understood what was going on as children either. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I pretty, I pretty much just understood that you either love Jesus and went to heaven or you didn't and you went to hell. I was like, well, that's good enough for me as a four-year-old. Very black and white. Burning alive sounded pretty bad. So like, I'll, I'll choose this other one. Like as a pastor's kid, you're traveling all around the country. How long did you guys travel for? Um, we had a motor home that we would travel in a lot if the like church events were stateside or we would like fly. Like if we went overseas, we'd kind of do them all together. So we'd be gone anywhere from like a month to two months overseas and then we'd come back. And my dad actually co-pastored the church with my grandfather. So they, when my dad would come back, he'd speak at the church in Dallas and then we'd be gone for another couple months and then we'd come back, which honestly, that's why we were homeschooled. It was less about them like protecting us from big, bad public school and more just because we weren't home enough to go to school. So yeah, it was a very unique childhood. Like, I mean, for some of the cringy things that there were, I saw the world. So it was, it was very educational in that sense that I got to see all these different cultures from a young age, which was cool. What countries did you get to go to? Quite a few. I mean, by the time I was 18, I had been to th over 30. A lot of Europe, a lot of Africa, and like a few places in Asia too, like Singapore, Malaysia. In Africa, it was like Ethiopia, Kenya. I went to South Africa four times. So like a lot of these places, we would go back like multiple times. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, we did get to go on like a legit African safari twice, once in Kenya and once in South Africa. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, the travel is cool. The reason, not so much, but the travel, very cool. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So at what point in your life, I mean, we're skipping very far ahead. At what point in your life were you starting to question the church and all of these things that you were doing? Sure. So I guess when you grow up in ministry, like a kid from like, you see all the crap that happens from behind the scenes. So I saw a lot of things that were suspicious, right. I guess, even growing up. But you find ways to justify it or excuse it as like, oh, these are just bad apples. Right. Okay. Instead of like recognizing the trees rotten, it's like, oh, no, but it's just like Satan just got to that one person, you know, but everyone else is fine. So it was a lot of those excuses, you know, all growing up and then the first thing that really made me start questioning, I guess, certain aspects of my faith, which we grew up Pentecostal. So we were very much into like faith healing and name it and claim it. Like as long as you have enough faith, God will answer your prayers, give you what you want. You know, like he's a little magical genie in a lamp. <laughs> so that was like our brand of Christianity or Pentecostal. And my dad back in 2011, was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. It was like rare because he was not a smoker. Probably got it. They said probably one of the countries we went to that had really bad pollution. Something uh. just got in there a long time ago. So anyway, it was like a freak thing, but we were Pentecostals. So we were like, oh no, God's going to heal him. Like, why wouldn't God heal him? And so we had all these people from all over the world, like all these churches that we had gone to, like rallying around my dad's healing. We had pastors and ministers just showing up at the hospital when he would be there, like uninvited, just kind of showing up wanting to be the person that said, 
the healing prayer to like, it started to feel really gross because it was less about my dad being healed and more about these people wanted to be able to go to their home church or whatever and be like, oh, I laid hands on so and God healed them. And like, you know, it, it was just gross. But anyway, but my dad did die. He passed away four months after he was diagnosed. And instead of people like, and not everyone was this way, but there were a lot of Christian ministers that we knew that blamed us for his lack of healing, for him dying, that like one minister told my mom that God didn't heal my dad because he was living out of God's will because he had become a pastor instead of staying in evangelism. And that's why. Oh, my God. Another, A couple other people said that it was because our family had some sort of unresolved sin and so God wouldn't answer our prayer until we resolved it, I guess. I don't know. And then, yeah. and th- But then there's tons of people that were like, oh, no, God did heal your dad. He just got the healing, like, just not this side of heaven. But God has healed him. And which, honestly, that um. one kind of pissed me off the most. Because I'm like, <laughs> that was not what I prayed. And God knows that was not my prayer. So, yeah, it was just like, it was just really gross. And I felt like so many people in the church we're just expecting us to move on really quickly. Like, oh, he's in heaven. Like, why aren't you happy about that? And it was the first time I really noticed how toxic all the positivity could be because I was genuinely really sad and heartbroken. And I felt like my pain was a burden to the people in the church. And so I kind of learned to just shove it down. Or if I talked about it, I had to put this like positive spin of like, oh, look at all the good things God's done because of this. It was just really hard, and it was the first time I really started. I I, I don't even know that I could have articulated what I was questioning, but things just felt off then. I'm so sorry you lost your dad. I understand the feeling of why is the world continuing? This huge thing just happened to me. Why is everybody just saying like, oh, he's in a better place. You should just be happy for that. I completely understand. I'm so sorry that happened to you. It is such a really hard time, and people I think are just I don't want to say stupid but people just <laughs> they are, are no. they're insensitive sometimes and they just don't understand it. and then to add that additional like evangelical guilt layer on top of it of like well this is because you didn't pray hard enough when it was a very aggressive advanced cancer that probably even with the best medical care wouldn't have survived much long you know what I mean like yeah it's really egregious to do that and then also even before when you were saying they were coming to be you know the hero that laid the hands that that saved him just to have the ability to turn around and say oh our church is better we're the one that did it like it's very performative it's very fake it doesn't seem very christian at all and i'm so sorry that your family had to even go through a fraction of any of that like that's just that's unnecessary and not loving yeah or supportive at all in any sense. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate that. I, it's, you know, I'm far enough removed now that I can talk about it and it's not like so heavy, but every once in a while I still look back. I'm like, that was, can I cuss on here? Yeah. Okay. I was going to say that was really shitty. <laughs> yeah, it is, shitty. For it, but. it is shitty. So was that the beginning? That experience was the crack? Was that your shelf breaking right there? Yeah, that was probably the first crack. Well, and also because my faith was so intertwined with my politics that even though I was slowly deconstructing like Pentecostal, like charismatic faith, 
my political side. Like I was still very Republican, but they that one cracked too, but I didn't know it yet. Cause we were like, I mean, we were basically Christian, we were Christian nationalists. Okay. We wouldn't have said we were at the time because I mean that that wasn't really a word back then. Like we just thought we were good Christians, you know, to be a good Christian, you love God, you love people, you vote Republican. Right. You know, like because America should be a Christian nation and Republicans are the Christian ones <laughs> somehow. <laughs> we thought they were. But yeah, that was kind of the first crack. And then over the next several years, there were a handful of other things that happened. Like, I mean, a lot of little things that added up over time. I worked for CBN, the 700 Club at Pat Robertson. Wow. And I worked there during the 2015 primary. So when Trump was first coming on board and it was being in those cubicles and the conversations that I heard was very interesting. <laughs> and that, and I think that was the first moment that I kind of realized I was not as conservative as like the larger evangelical culture was at least where I was there. Cause I was deviating some. I remember when the Supreme court ruled in favor of gay marriage. I believe it was June of 2015. I was sitting in my CBN cubicle when the news broke and it was like, ding, 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 all the breaking news from across. And the wailing that I heard on that floor, people like you would have thought like a terrorist attack, like a bomb was on its way. The way people were just in a sheer panic that the world was coming to an end and it was, the, and I like had pulled up CNN on my desktop to just like watch the live coverage. And I saw like all these really happy, like gay people outside of in like the Washington Mall and like in DC with their signs. And they were so happy. But it was like weeping and gnashing of teeth at the, in the CBN cubicles. It was wild. It was just such a weird like contrast. At that point, I was not LGBTQ affirming. I would have said homosexuality is a sin, and I was still very much like theologically conservative, but I was not the world is ending because some people can get married now camp. But a lot of people around me were, so that was odd. <laughs> I just, I'm like, my mouth is just hanging open, like my jaw's on the floor. I just, wow. And to see that, right, to see one side of these people just so happy and just loving and in love and sharing their love and just that joy, pure joy. And then the opposite side is, like you said, wailing and gnashing of teeth, like the world is on fire. Those two images are just, wow. Okay. So I can understand sitting in that situation and seeing that and being like, this is weird. What were some of the other experiences that you had sitting in the cubicles at Pat Robertson's? <laughs> well, I just heard a lot of people talking about who their favorite candidate was, and everyone seemed to either like Ted Cruz or Donald Trump, and those were my two least favorite, which was another like, what is wrong with me? And, like, I thought there was something majorly <laughs> wrong with me because I was like, I am not tracking. We are not on the same page here. And it was just like little things. Like I was assigned a story of a woman who I was like really excited to do her story. But like last minute, we'd found out that she was going through a divorce. And so they wanted me to pull the story because they didn't want to do it now that she was going to be divorced. And so I fought for her. I was like, why does that matter? Her story is still the same. 
And I actually, I was proud of myself because I was able to still do the story, but I wasn't allowed to mention her divorce. (laughs) Oh my God. But anyway, it was just like little things like that. And this would have been about four years since my dad had been diagnosed and passed away. And so I was doing all these like healing stories because my job, I was a producer. So I would go to like interview like the actual like testimonial type stories of miracles or, you know, overcoming addiction, all these different things. And we would always like wrap this nice little bow on it that like, you know, like I did a story of a kid who had cancer who was healed and, you know, it was giving God all the glory, but he also had like top notch medical treatment at a children's hospital. And at the time I didn't like see like a major problem with it because like we always gave God the glory for good things. But slowly over time, I was just like, I don't think we're being honest. We're only telling stories that have these perfect amazing endings. And we're also putting like this twist on it, but that's not real life for most people. Even at the time I wanted to, uh, I pitched having a guy on the show who was an openly gay Christian, but was celibate, like was choosing to be celibate and was just like open about his same sex desires and how like he had asked God to take it away, which for the record, if you don't know who I am, I'm fully LGBTQ affirming now. I'm just speaking in the past. (laughs) I don't want (laughs) to just just to get that out there. But at the time I was like, look at this guy. Like he's being real. Like he's talking about something that most people, when they ask God to take their gayness away, doesn't happen, which I know now just doesn't happen. People just suppress it, but regardless. But even then I was told in our producer meeting, like, no, we just want like the full healing or nothing. Like we want to give people hope. And I was like, that's not giving people hope. That's just making people despair more when they're not getting that. They're going to think there's something wrong with them. So it was just like little things like that. I just felt like we weren't being real about what people are actually going through unless they have this like really great, happy ending. And yeah, so I, I don't know if that makes sense. It was just like- No, totally. A lot. It was just the Christian culture of like this toxic positivity of, you know, God always answers prayer. And like, if you only watch the 700 Club testimonials, you would think that God just always answered prayer and that no one ever had, you know, God deny them or reject them or ignore them. So I'm sure that was also hard, like knowing your situation with your father and like only posting and sharing these affirming stories like that, where you're like, but I know for a fact that suffering happens and these like not every prayer is answered, just very heavy weighing on you. So at what point were you like, I'm done with all of this. I'm done. This is over. I'm in a cult. I have to get out. Right. Well, a month after Supreme Court ruled in favor of gay marriage, my brother, I have two brothers, they're twins. One of them came out to visit me in Virginia and came out to me that he was gay. Amazing. Yeah. So that was super eye-opening for me and that really sent me on a hardcore journey of like figuring out my theology around like queerness and homosexuality and gender and all that also happening at the same time as this, which this is like its own whole story. So we're not going to get into it, but my spouse was dealing with gender dysphoria this entire time, which I knew about, but we didn't know what that was. Like we didn't have any language for it. And turns out they're non-binary. We didn't know at the time, but like sometimes I'd come home and Beecher, that's my spouse, they would just be in tears. Like, I I put on one of your dresses today, like confessing it to me. Like it was like they'd killed someone. And it was just really hard. We didn't have anyone to talk to about it. And anytime Beecher would like try to talk to someone at church, because they were working at a really large church in Virginia at the time, it was always 
oh, well, that's demonic. Like you want to get that under control or like equated it to a porn addiction. Like you just need to like, it was just, there was no space to talk about it in the evangelical circles that we were. So we felt kind of isolated in that. And then also at the same time is Trump happening. I do think Trump was the straw that broke the camel's back because I knew how to justify these other things of like, well, they just don't understand. They don't, you know, I knew the hoops, the mental gymnastics to do to make all these other things fit, but I could not do that for Trump. There was just something about the pee grabbing and the bragging of assaults and the racism and the misogyny and just, and it wasn't so much Trump. It was the evangelicals that I knew that were defending him and praising him like he was some, like that literally that he was God's chosen and he was a part of some prophecy, like multiple prophecies apparently. And then like in one breath, they would hate Hillary so much. Like she was Jezebel. She was evil incarnate. Like we could not have her be president because the world would end. And then Trump, who actually like did terrible things and like couldn't, not, I'm not saying Hillary's 100% innocent, but you know, like Trump is, Trump was Trump. Right. They were saying like, oh, well, he's just a baby Christian. God can use anybody. Who are we to judge? I'm like, oh my gosh, what you, what are you doing with Hillary then? That was too much for me. I was like, something's off. Something's very much not working here. Do you ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet just for anyone to find? I promise it's more than you think. Your name, contact info, social security number, home address, even information about your family members. It's all being compiled by data brokers and openly sold online. This can lead to a lot of problems, including identity theft, phishing attempts, harassment, and unwanted spam calls. But now you can protect your privacy with Delete Me. Signing up for the service is super easy. Just provide Delete.me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. They send you regular, personalized privacy reports showing what info they found, where they found it, and what they removed. I got my report, and I was floored with the results. Of the 105 data brokers they checked, 83 of them had my data. Delete.me then removed 173 listings of my personal data off the internet. And they make sure that it stays off too. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me at a special discount just for our listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and use promo code MLM at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and enter code MLM at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash MLM code MLM. Head over to quince.com and grab yourself a little something something and support the show by supporting our sponsors. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and say hello to lightweight fabrics and classic styles. I have been taking advantage of the beautiful weather and getting outside for daily walks, and I cannot say enough good things about the Flow Knit High Rise Boyfriend Jogger from Quince. Seriously, running errands, doing school pickups, swinging by the farmer's market, or taking Jaja for a stroll around the lake, these bad boys are versatile. I love the deep pockets, the high waistband, and the internal hidden drawstring. 
Their quick drying, moisture wicking, antimicrobial, and the four-way stretch makes them so comfortable. They're made with 88% recycled polyester and the Global Style Standard Certified Yarn dramatically lowers environmental impact by diverting landfill and ocean-bound plastic. Not to mention using recycled claim standard approved dyeing, washing, and manufacturing processes with low water and eco-friendly dyes. They have become an absolute favorite and you can save up to 59% off the high-end counterpart by shopping with Quince. Throw on a cotton modal scoop neck tee and some sneakers and you've got a perfect effortless outfit. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com MLM for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash M-L-M to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash M-L-M. What's a baby, Christian? Have you never heard that phrase? I mean, I feel it may, I don't know. Baby, is it like a new Christian? Yeah, you say that it's what you use when people that you're really rooting for are still like, quote unquote, sinning or messing up. But it's like, oh, they're just a baby Christian. Like they're still working out the kinks of their Christianity. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I think it was James Dobson who claimed that Donald Trump said the sinner's prayer with him. So everyone's like, oh, no, he is a Christian. Like, he literally said in an interview that he's never asked God for forgiveness. And I'm sorry, if you are going to be a, the Bible is literal and inerrant, you cannot then say that someone who has openly said they have never asked God for forgiveness is a Christian. Oh my God. Just didn't make, like, the just the excuses they were making for this man. It's like, what are y'all doing? Wow. I mean, it makes sense, right? But wow. Okay. So Trump is elected. You see how everybody is just defending these horrific actions every single time, every turn, there's another scandal. And they're like, he's just a baby Christian. Yeah. We have to, what LuLaRoe likes to say, assume innocence. We have to assume innocence. Yes. We probably don't mean to be like that. Yeah. They just don't know any better yet. They're a baby Christian. We're a baby company. <laughs> like I said that too. It's just growing pain. Oh my god! That's all it was. It was just growing pain. Yes. So you decide to not be, conservative anymore. Yes. So in 2016, I was still registered Republican and was planning to vote Republican until it was Trump. And then I was like, I was the famed never Trumper. Like people called me a never Trumper, like an insult. And I was like, I don't think that's an insult. Like I wear that like a badge of honor. But yeah, I think another thing that really, really woke me up to just one, all the Christian nationalism that is within American Christianity and how harmful a lot of like my faith was, which I hadn't realized at the time, was like, I've always been super political. So I was very Republican for a very long time. And then when Trump happened, I was still like, I'm just still going to be open about this. So I would like go to Facebook because that's what it was at the time. And I'd just be like, hey, guys, what are we what are we doing here? And so like, I would say things so moderate, like not even not even liberal by any means, but just being like, do you really think Trump, does it make sense for us for Trump to be our guy? And I was met with so much hate from people I knew, like that I grew up with in my dad's church. A couple different people said to either me or even my brother that our late father would be disappointed in us for not voting for Trump. <laughs> like they could assume that. It was just this weird, the names that I was called 
for not getting behind Trump, that like I was being deceived by Satan and then also now being used as a tool by Satan by spreading this propaganda against Trump, who is God's chosen. He's like a Cyrus in the Bible. Wow. Yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> it was like you decide I can't be a conservative anymore. Yeah. Is that around the same time that you decide that this type of Christianity is not what you want to believe anymore as well? Yes. I was definitely starting to recognize like the nationalism that had been part of my Christianity for so long. So I was definitely divorcing those two things. And then in the process, it was this eye-opening, okay, so I really liked all these Christian leaders who are now on the Trump train. Like I listened to them on a lot of things. I believed them when they told me about the rapture or original sin or, you know, all these different theological things. And I was just like, if I know in my heart that they are wrong about Trump, what else are they wrong about that I have believed my entire life without questioning to this point? And it was kind of a domino effect where I started just going topic by topic. And I, I would say like my hardcore deconstructing or, you know, detoxing Christianity started during the pandemic because also these same people were like completely, I don't want to be rude, but they were just, I did not understand how people just couldn't wear a mask. And we lived in a super small town in Tennessee that went 77% for Trump in 2020. So like ultra conservative and like I went to the Walmart the locally, like the first day that they were like that they were requiring masks in their stores. And this like 40-year-old woman barreled past this like 80-year-old lady who worked at Walmart and she was just like, excuse me, ma'am, can you put on your mask? And she was like, I ain't wearing no mask, it's my right. And just like stormed past her, like pushed her out of the way. And I was like, what on earth is happening? So the pandemic was also a big, like, I don't understand why we, like, why we just can't wear a mask. Even if you think it's pointless and doesn't work, doesn't do anything to you. And then like all the QAnon stuff. And some people were saying that the COVID vaccine was the mark of the beast, or it was a dress rehearsal for the mark of the beast, which is coming up, you know, in Revelation and the rapture or whatever. Yeah. I don't even know if I answered your question. I don't remember what your question was. <laughs> we're just talking about you're detoxing yeah. because you love Jesus. Yes. You're not anti-Jesus. You are a Christian, but you are no longer a Christian nationalist. Right. So you're detoxing. A lot of people say deconstructing, but that's what I like about you is you call it detoxing. And it is because you're taking out the toxic stuff. You're taking out the stuff that doesn't serve you, that doesn't work, that doesn't belong in your belief system. And you're leaving the good, which is, I think most of the people that listen to the show that are Christian are in that sect as well. Like we don't want the bullshit anymore. Yeah. Like we are detoxing in our deconstruction. So let's talk about your detoxing. And then I want to talk to you about purity culture and your experiences too. Yes. Why do you choose to use the word detoxing versus deconstructing? Well, one, deconstruction is just, it's such a buzzword now. And I'm not against the word deconstruction by any means. I, I still use it like in conversation just because people know what that is. But it's like, I, I have in my bio that I'm humorously detoxing American Christianity. And that's mainly because there's been times in my journey that I kind of wanted to throw everything out because my only experience with Christianity was American evangelical Christianity. 
And as I started trying to have a more like global understanding of the faith, I just realized there's a lot of really good things here still that I don't necessarily, like, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater necessarily. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with people who do that because sometimes it needs to all be thrown out, but that's just kind of where I've landed, I guess. But I like calling it detoxing because I just think there's a lot of really harmful stuff in Christianity that it's possible to take that stuff out and leave good. I know there's plenty of people who would disagree with me that they think Christianity is just like all trash and fair. I do not begrudge anyone who feels that way by any means. But for me, like I, I still have like very spiritual experiences that I hold very dear to me that mean a lot. And I think where I've landed, you didn't ask this question, but I'm just going to tell you like where I've landed, like faith wise is like, sure, I could tell you all these things that I believe. But like I hold my beliefs really loosely now where before like when I was evangelical, everything was so rigid and I had to hold on to everything so tightly. And I think that's why I think that's why deconstruction is kind of a good word for it in a sense, because once you pull one thing out of this like really tight Jenga puzzle, it all kind of crumbles down because a lot of it doesn't make sense at the end of the day. And when you pull one string of something that doesn't make sense, it just kind of all unravels. But like you still have you still have the pieces. Like those still exist and they're not all bad. But to me like beliefs are an intangible that is something that's in my head and it doesn't really affect my life or the people around me. Like it can. Like if I let my beliefs dictate how I treat people, like that is a negative, but like Ultimately, those are like decisions that I am making on what I am doing based on what I believe. But I've, I'm trying to take a more like action approach to my faith. And like as long as I'm like loving my neighbor and trying to make this world a better place and standing up for people less fortunate than me and people that don't have my – like using my privilege to – do what I can to make my community better and more equitable. Like that to me is actually like living out of faith that actually like puts to action what my beliefs once were, even if some of them were crazy. I don't know if that makes sense, but. No, absolutely. <laughs> I love that description. I, I really do. One of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you, and I've, been, I've wanted to talk to you for a long time, but you posted this thing on your Instagram about the song Solomon and like you literally posted it days after my episode with Pastor Rob, where we talk about that had come out. And I was like, this is too serendipitous for me <laughs> to not be like, hey, it's finally time for us to talk. And you graciously accepted. Thank you. And then I saw a podcast. Someone else had like done an episode about Song of Solomon or something. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is all converging. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. And again, it's purity culture. I talk to people who are like, wait, what's purity culture? And then I kind of explain it and they go, oh, I think. I do. Yeah, I had that too as a kid, like they bring it up. And so it's been a topic this entire year. And I wanted to get your take on purity culture and detoxing from purity culture and your thoughts on Song of Solomon. And it was just very funny. And you're a very funny person. And so I thought it would be a great little chat for us to have. Oh, yeah, sure. No, I, I just found I think I saw Dan McClellan's Instagram video about how the, the couple in Song of Solomon weren't married. And I had always been taught that they were. But I don't know why. Like looking back, like why did I just believe that? <laughs> but but that they weren't. And I was like, oh my gosh, now I'm just going to go cry into my purity pledge card. All these years being lied to. Oh, purity culture. Where do I even begin? Purity culture 
screwed me and my spouse over like so badly. Both of us. It got both of us. I don't know if you were taught that like in youth group, as long as you save yourself for marriage, God's going to bless you when you get married and you're going to have like the best sex ever. That like married sex is the best sex and only married sex if you've waited is the best sex. Like sure, God can forgive you if you mess up, but it's really never going to be as good as if you waited. I don't know if you heard that or not. (laughs) So I was not raised in the church, but I went to a lot of youth group meetings Mm. because all of my other friends were in churches and that's what they were doing on Wednesdays. And so I just sort of tagged along. And so I did hear things like that. There were definitely thoughts in my mind when I started getting to that age where I'm like, which one of these boys would I consider marrying? Mm -hmm. Because it's at that point where you're like, the next step is finding somebody to marry so that you can do all these things that you've been promised to do. So like I wasn't raised that way, but it was definitely like a vein that ran through me for sure. Gotcha. Well, I was raised that way. So my dad, love him, may he rest in peace. He like instilled from a very early age the importance of me being a virgin when I got married, which there was nothing wrong with doing that if that's what you want to do. More power to you. But like it was very much more focused on me than my two brothers. And I told him like, yeah, sure. I'm going to vow to save myself for marriage. Like I made that pledge when I was like 10 (laughs) because it just seemed like, yeah, who would need sex? I mean, none of my hormones had kicked in yet. It just seemed like the easiest decision ever. Like who would want that? That sounds gross. Yeah. Ew, gross. Where do I sign? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So easy. How is this hard for anyone? So I, I said I vowed to stay a virgin until I got married. And like my dad would brag about it from the pulpit. Like I'd be in the sermons and my dad would be like, yeah, April's saving herself for marriage. She's taking a vow of purity and everyone would cheer, which is just weird thinking back on it now. But yeah, there was like one time it felt really icky because I had gone to like the kids church version of, I don't even know, some random church we were visiting at and my dad spoke and I came out towards the end of the service to meet up with my parents. And I was probably 13 at the time. And there was this kid, he looked a little older than me. He's probably maybe 15. He like comes up to me. He's like, you're that virgin chick. (laughs) And like made fun of me like that. And I was like, oh, like that's our only interaction. That's that it just felt real weird. And I was like, I don't think I like that. Just felt a little bone, like exposing, like violating. <laughs> I was like, I'm 13. What a weird thing. I mean, a 15 year old boy would totally say that, but still, like, what a weird thing to say to somebody. <laughs> yeah. And like, just, I'm like 13, I'm coming out of kids' church, and it's like, you're the virgin chick. <laughs> That's so stupid. I'm like, uh-huh. what is happening here? And then all growing up, I went to youth group where uh, the amount of purity talks I heard. And then like also with modesty, like for the girls was very important too, because we were taught that we have to protect the boys' eyes and men's eyes because they can't help it because God made them very visual creatures. And if they see an underage exposed shoulder, they're not thinking you're underage. They're just seeing a shoulder and they can't control whatever. Like literally they would say all this stuff about men, how they can't control their desires if they see any exposed amount of skin, even if it's like an elbow. And yet somehow women were still the weaker vessel. (laughs) Like miss me with that. That's an excellent (laughs) point. Uh, like shoulders send you into a frenzy and I'm weaker. Okay. (laughs) Right. Seriously. I mean, I do have nice shoulders, but come on. (laughs) Look at those ankles. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Kneecaps really do it for them. Yeah. So 
And I was also really tall. So this like modest is hottest and purity culture like really like I was literally the hottest <laughs> because I would be in like Texas 100 degree summers wearing a freaking sweater over my summer dress. And like I'd have to wear pants a lot of the time because I had really long legs and they didn't make shorts that looked like every pair of normal shorts looked like booty shorts on me just because I had really long legs. They weren't booty shorts. My booty was very much covered, but you just saw a lot of leg. Right. And so I had to cover it up. And so I had butt sweat and pit <laughs> sweat. And I mean, modest is hottest. I guess they didn't lie about it. <laughs> and then you'd have the youth group nights where they would do all these purity illustrations. And it was usually focused on the girls, but like they would address the boys. But really, like, I remember one, they got a water bottle and they poured some of the water out and they were like, I need 10 guys to come up here. And so like 10 of the youth group boys go up front and they take turns spitting into the water bottle. And then at the end, the youth pastor's like, all right, who wants to drink it? Ew. And no one raised their hand and they're like, all right, ladies, this, that's how guys feel about you when you sleep around. Uh, like every person that you're intimate with is like spitting in your water bottle. Oh my God. <laughs> It's so that's not even the word. Yeah, there's so many like chewed up piece of gum was another one. Like you can never get it slick again. Once <laughs> it's chewed, you're screwed. Once it's chewed, you are officially chewed up. And then like they had, oh, the soul ties. Were you taught about soul ties ever? No. Okay. This one, this one's a doozy. I knew about the gum. Okay. And Pastor Rob taught me about passing the rose around the congregation. Mm, yes. And then being like the old. The crumpled up, up rose. Wilty rose. Yeah. Oh, soul ties. Okay. Tell me about soul ties. Okay. So soul ties, they would use an example of like you get two sheets of paper and you put glue on them and you stick them together, right? That's like having sex. They're stuck together. And then you rip them apart. And there's pieces of paper stuck on either one because you have tied your soul to whoever you sleep with for eternity. Like a horcrux. <laughs> yes, it's like a, it's like a purity culture horcrux. So every person you sleep with, your soul is tied to them forever. So whenever you do get married, you now have to share your bed with every previous person you've ever had soul-wise because you've been connected. Wow. Weird stuff. Weird that's just, you're right. It's just weird. It's just fear mongering. It's just scaring children and girls mostly because the guys are like, this doesn't really apply to us. We're fine. Like we can do what we want. Yeah. I mean, literally even from the youth group, they'd be like, all right, boys, <laughs> do your best, you know, but we know you got a penis. So <laughs> got a mind of its own. Yeah. Like boy, boys will be boys. Like, yeah. There was like way more grace for the boys. And also no one really talked about like a boy gifting their virginity to a girl. It was always like the girl, like it was a gift that she would give her husband. It was a one-time gift, apparently. Apparently vaginas break after sing you know, single use only. <laughs> then permanently damaged. Seals broken. <laughs> yeah. You can't return it now. Sorry. Wow. Oh, unless – so when I was in college – I went to a Pentecostal Assemblies of God college my sophomore year. Only lasted one year because this place was wild. Wild in the sense that they had rules that had rules and thought it was fun. But they, we had purity week. So at this school, we had chapel every single day. That was mandatory. And it was Pentecostal. So you never knew if it was like an hour, like it was scheduled, or if it was going to be two and a half hours because the Holy Spirit fell and people were sprinting around the 
the auditorium and being slain in the spirit. And don't worry, they didn't make up any of those classes because if the Holy Spirit fell, that was more important than your education. So wow. if just to give you some context clues of this school. So one of the weeks we had during this year was called Purity Week, where we had chapel twice a day, morning and night, and it was mandatory. And the entire week was solely focused on making sure us college students were not getting frisky. There was one speaker who got up who claimed that God could restore girls' hymens so that they could be physical virgins again for their husband. Oh. Yeah. What? How? I don't, you know, he just said it. We just, you know, you just believe him. We just believed it. Because <laughs> he was a man at the pulpit, you know? Was it for people that had oopsed in high school? Yes. It was for those who had... Who wanted to be pure now. Right. Not for people who wanted to have a good time and be pure later. Right. It was not... It was for specifically, you know, it was like (laughs) you have to buy now situation, like not for future use. Like if you've messed up, you need a new hymen now. One night only. Ask for it. Right. Yeah. You could get it back. Yeah. At the end of this week, though, they gave out purity pledge cards for us to sign And you could circle if you were a virgin or a secondary virgin because (laughs) they didn't discriminate. They were very progressive. (laughs) They knew, chances are in college, some people had already done the dirty. So don't worry. You could be a secondary virgin with your new hymen. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, we're not going to get a lot of people in the purity club unless we give them an insurance. (laughs) So they give you the option to re-virginize at the door. Yes. Right. Secondary virgin. Wow. Yeah, in college. That's just... <laughs> there were people already married at this point. I mean, it's just... Well, uh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. So it's very interesting that they were claiming they could do that in college. It was also Pentecostal. So, you know, name it and claim it. You right. can name a hymen. And <laughs> claim it for your own. Like you're buying a star for a friend. Mm-hmm. Like, happy birthday, I bought you a star. Your <laughs> Valentine's Day, just like give your, you know, who you're ever you're almost engaged to because you had ring by spring in Christian college. So by Valentine's Day, you're practically like, you probably have a promise ring. Did, y'all, did you know about the promise rings in youth group? I do remember promise rings, yes. <laughs> so you have like your purity ring, which is like the ring your dad gives you. Yes. To save yourself. I had one of those. Then you had a promise ring which would be given to you from like your boyfriend who wasn't ready to get engaged yet. The promise to be engaged. Pre-engagement ring. That's precious. Purity rings though, like that's Jonas Brothers level. Yeah, mine though, I did not want a purity ring that said anything true love weights or like, I didn't want it to be obvious that it was a purity ring. So I just picked out a ring that I liked that was white gold and had a couple diamonds and my dad bought it for me for my 16th birthday. Okay. But I would wear it all the time. I had a lot of Mormon friends that had choose the right rings, which is basically the same concept. Oh, interesting. It's the Mormon version of the purity ring in Christianity. Gotcha. Yeah. It says CTR. It's really interesting as I like make videos about deconstructing and like detoxing and like being ex-evangelical, there's obviously a lot of differences, but there's quite a bit of overlap with Mormonism too. Right? Y'all had it rough, but they couldn't have coffee. Right. I'm like, that's worse automatically. <laughs> I dated a guy 
who considered himself a bad Mormon. And he was like, don't worry, I'm a bad Mormon. I was like, oh, that's a red flag. Boys will be boys. He didn't get very far. Yeah. But I was like, I wouldn't expect this from somebody who claims to be so pure and pious. It was a very interesting. That was probably one of I haven't even thought about that in so long. But that was probably one of my eye opening moments, too, about a lot of the things that I had been led to believe as a teenager about the whole relationship, purity, marriage, Mm. God relationship thing. I was like, wait a second, this isn't right. Wow. I haven't thought about that in a really long time. (laughs) April, you're unlocking all of these purity culture memories for me. Let's do it. Let's unlock that trauma. Get it to the surface and let's oh laugh, cry God. about it. <laughs> yeah. And I'm pretty sure my college boyfriend's family was Pentecostal. I, I've mentioned him in other episodes uh, because they didn't believe in medicine and things like that. Like I had to keep Advil mm. in my car for headaches and like PMS cramps uh-huh. so I could go outside off the property and take my medicine and then come back on their house property. And oh, my gosh. They wouldn't even let me bring it like <laughs> I had to park on the street. Oh, my gosh. That's next level. So. <laughs> <laughs> we did believe in medicine, but we had people in our church that did not. Yeah. I knew those types. And they went to an Assembly of God church. So I went a couple times. That was my purity week school was Assemblies of God. We used to have a joke in my – we were non-denominational. My grandfather was in Assemblies of God and left the denomination to become non-denom. But we had a saying, for all have sinned and fallen short of the Assemblies of God. Because they just have stupid rules, like rules for rules sake. There was like all of they had a ton of kids, very quiverful, and they had everybody lived at home until they got married. So it was like they were there was bunk beds in every room. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like 22 year old brother sharing a, a bunk bed with his like seven year old brother kind of like level. Oh, my God. We don't move out until we get married. Yeah, it was a very interesting. I ran as soon as I woke up from it all. Yeah. And that all happened during like 2000, like around Bush being elected. And I remember all of that happening with them. And I was like, I don't, I don't think that we, same with you, but like earlier, much, yeah. you know, earlier, I was like, I don't think I, I vibe with this. April, you're making me think about all of the things that happened that I, <laughs> I thought I buried deep. Oh my. Apparently a little scratch brought him right to the surface. Yeah. Um, bring them up. So <laughs> another thing that I wanted to talk to you about was your experience with MLMs, because you told me that you had never really like been into them, but you had a few experiences. It's always funny to talk about MLMs with people. And so yeah, I wanted to talk about your MLM experience. Sure. I. <laughs> so growing up, my parents were involved in MLMs, like the OG style MLMs. I don't know if they ever did Amway, but they, we had friends that did Amway, but they did like They did one called Excel and one called Nutrition for Life. I don't think either of them exist anymore, but I would go to all the meetings because my my dad was actually a really good salesman on top of being a pastor. Like they were just very charismatic and very likable and just knew how to sell really well. And we actually, when we were in Nutrition for Life, it it was kind of like they did a bunch of like supplements and just healthier, like healthy cookies, healthy stuff. I don't even know. But we took a bunch of these cookies that to me when I was a kid, I thought they tasted pretty nasty, but you know, they're supposed to be really <laughs> healthy, but we like took them all to that one would have been Kenya and like gave them away to like orphanages and all this stuff. So like there was like a lot of MLM combination with 
ministry too, in a weird way. Okay. But most recently, I was a worship leader at that large church in Virginia that I mentioned earlier. And the LuLaRoe craze hit wild. Like it hit hard and it hit fast. And next thing you know, I'm being invited. I probably went to like at least four LuLaRoe. No, I went to more than that. I had so much LuLaRoe. And I remember one of the ones that I went to, the lady at the front, because it was like most of the worship team had gone for some reason, because it was one of the worship team women like hosted the LuLaRoe party. And the girl got up and she was like, good news, you can wear these leading worship. That was like part of her pitch. So like, your pastor's cool with it. Like, we like you can wear these on stage. So it was like this whole thing. Was like, ooh, I can wear them on stage leading worship. So, oh my gosh. Like for that couple years that I was there, any weekend you would go, there was at least two women on that stage wearing like insane patterned LuLaRoe leggings, me being one of them. Head to toe. <laughs> Head to toe. LuLaRoe's like one of their claim to fame, aside from being buttery soft was that it was compliant with Mormon garments. So it was very modest, right? Because modest is hottest. That's why I was made out of polyester. That's a whole nother puzzle piece we just wow. connected. So they came down far enough on, on the arms to cover Mormon garments, which are, we've talked about in previous episodes about the garments they wear underneath their clothes. And they're like bike short length and like, I don't know, like baby doll tee length in terms of that. So all the garments were long enough to cover that. So all of the skirts were at least knee length, if not longer. And they also, in the very beginning, sold temple garments that you could actually wear while cleaning the Mormon temples. You could buy LuLaRoe. Oh my gosh. Temple approved cleaning temple garments too. So I think that aspect of being modest for Mormon, which the LDS community was, I think, even more, I don't know, even more modest. I'm not sure. Yeah. I feel like they were all modest. But because it was that, it really flowed really well into the Christian communities as well. <laughs> and it's interesting that you said that, that it was like that as well, that people like wearing head to toe on stage. Yeah. Because you could. Oh, yeah. No, you could. And you could wear like the sh a shirt as a scarf or it's like a cool little, little bell. There's like multiple things. Although one time I made Cassie, is that one of the skirts? It's the pencil skirt. The pencil skirt. Yes. I turned a Cassie into a tube top dress. Oh yes. Very short. So I felt like, ha. Yeah. I, there was actually a time, I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast or not. If I have, then, you know, skip ahead. But there was a time at one of the LuLaRoe conventions because people were doing that. I mean, mind you, it was in Southern California. It was super, super hot. Everybody was already wearing LuLaRoe pieces as secondary items. You could wear the like the pencil skirt as a tube top, yeah. or as a tube dress. They had the flowy skirt you could wear as like a flowy dress. People would wear them as beach cover-ups and things like that. And the company never said anything about any of that because it just caused people to buy more stuff. Right. But at the convention, when we're all around head to toe in our LuLaRoe and people are wearing, quote, items not as intended it became such a problem 
that they had people stand up on stage before like the next presentation and basically give us a PSA. And like the collective face of these women who were in the audience, just so excited. We're going to hear a special message from there was like the wives of everybody it was all they, they called them the styling sisters. So it was like Deanne's daughters and like the wives of her sons. It was this whole group and they would all pick the same item and style it totally different. So you could see like how sporty or you could take it from day to night or I really like that sister style. So it was this whole thing. Right. And so they get up on stage and, and we're like so excited. The styling sisters are going to tell us something. And they're like, it has been brought to our attention that some of you are wearing LuLaRoe pieces unintendedly, and you need to make sure that when you are representing the brand, that you wear everything as intended because, I mean, it was this whole thing. And Oh, my gosh. Like the faces of every being like the styling sisters, too. Oh, my God. She's talking about me literally right now. I'm wearing a maxi skirt as a dress. I've belted it and thrown a sweat like she's literally talking. I mean, in these women, like you could hear the heartbreak in the room. Aww. And I remember because I was a hun bot at the time looking around and being like, I'm wearing it as intended. <laughs> <laughs> she's not talking about me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. And I remember, like I vividly remember thinking like. This isn't for me. Mm. <laughs> I'm following the rules. Oh my gosh. And so it was just this weird thing where like on the back end, we were, it was totally fine that I'm posting things of me wearing things as beach cover-ups. But after that, they started really cracking down. And then it wasn't like, it wasn't as fun because then it was, the LuLaRoe wasn't as needy as it used to be because we weren't allowed to wear it in all the ways that we had discovered. Wow. It was just super culty. And yeah, I think that I, if it had happened the next year when I was already questioning things, it would have been a much bigger red flag to me. And instead of like a green flag, <laughs> me being so subservient to them. <laughs> yeah. That's so wild. Anyway. Yeah. You got, you've got these LuLaRoe modest pieces. You're wearing them at church, the pastor's wives and everybody in the congregation sells it and is having all these parties and everybody's just it's just spreading like wildfire you still have some LuLaRoe in your closet I sure do I have a whole drawer over there in my armoire of gosh I have at least I don't know 20 25 pairs of leggings maybe wow and they've all held up they have holes in them I mean I kind of stopped wearing them I got rid of a few that were like, why did I get that? I won a few too. I went to so many of the pop-ups that I won quite a few free ones. Oh, I did host my own party online with someone at one point. And so I got a lot of free stuff from that. Some of them are cute, but like now I can't bring myself. No. I can't bring myself to wear them now. No. I still have them though. I have a few pieces that I keep for like comedy reasons. And that's about it, really. Everything else, I was like, I got to get this out of my house. I just, it can't be here anymore. Yeah, that's totally fair. I have used them a few times as, it's great if I'm having to play a pastor's wife. I've got the outfits there already, so. Absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic costumes. They absolutely are. Yes. I'm like, this is great. Everything is content. <laughs> Might as well use what you have. Yes, exactly. It's all content now. <laughs> absolutely. You also mentioned that you guys got into World Ventures for a bit. Can you talk to me about World Ventures? We've mentioned it before on the podcast that it's a travel MLM, but I, I want to hear your perspective of World Ventures and how that all went down. Yeah. So my my brother got hoodwinked into it. 
not the gay brother, the other brother, the straight one. And I'm pretty sure it was a girl who hoodwinked him, like a girl he was interested in. And she was like one of the top dogs in it. Cause she was like, she was in her twenties and she had, she would hashtag retired at 20, like no job life. I don't know. She hashtagged something on like all of her stuff. Cause she had made so much money that she could retire already from it. Right. Ironically, though, she was Calvinist and my brother wasn't. So she wouldn't date my brother, like got him into the business, <laughs> like under false pretenses. And then at the end of the day, she's like, nah, you're not Calvinist. Sounds MLM to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Missionary dating kind of <laughs> traveling to do missionary. Anyway, so my brother had just joined. He had been in it for a couple months. And my other brother came out to visit us in Virginia, pitched us on the whole thing. And so we joined more to support him but we got the cool little wish you were here or you should be here what does it say you should be here i think in the little blue flag that you'd hold up in pictures yeah right <laughs> yeah we still have ours somewhere but yeah we joined and i think beecher tried to get a few friends to join too and no one would and then we were like yeah <laughs> we just kind of decided like yeah we're not gonna try anymore just count that as a $300 loss. Did you ever like go on a vacation or try to book a vacation? No. Cause honestly the deals didn't seem like they were good deals if you could swing it on the specific dates, but they weren't like, it wasn't out of this world good deals and we never ended up using it. So we really did just lose money on it. <laughs> I think they, I don't remember really, but I've heard things like they buy travel packages that like are off season or are on just like times where people don't normally go not even just off season but like just l lulls in the year yeah and they're just these really strange packages that are like very specific like you have to fly on this day or you have to travel on this day and it's really rigid and I think people buy these packages hoping that they'll find a vacation that fits yeah and then a lot of it just ends up never being used. Yeah, we definitely never used it. I think I have a spa certificate like that somewhere that like uh. someone bought me and I like never used it. You know what I mean? It's that sort of yes. people buy these vouchers or these promises of something in the future and then no one ever gets around to actually booking it. Yeah. Yes. It definitely felt like that. And you lost $300. We did. We did lose $300. It was not <sighs> that's a bummer. the best. But that's not a huge loss for the lesson. <laughs> That's true. I mean, we were newly married at the time. Didn't have a lot of extra cash flowing oh, around, no. but it was fine. We were, I mean, we survived. Lesson learned. We didn't join any other MLMs after that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I also wanted to talk to you about your podcast. Mm, yes. Because as a podcaster, I love talking to other people who are podcasters and like their experience in podcasting. So can you tell us about your podcast? Sure. So I co-host a podcast called Evangelical-ish. I do it with two other. One's a current pastor still, and then one is an ex-Assemblies of God pastor. And we met during the pandemic from TikTok and just kind of started chatting. We were like, we should really do something and talk about it. Everyone has a podcast. But we're like, yeah, sure. It's a pandemic. What else are we going to do? So we started... I think we started February of 2021 and we just, we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of the American Evangelical Church, our tagline. We do talk a lot of politics. All three of us are former con 
conservatives, like diehard Republicans. One pastor's former SBC, and then we're two ex-Pentecostals. So we just, it's weekly. We record live on YouTube on Wednesday night so people can join in. And we have like a live chat where you can, we kind of interact some. And then it goes to podcast day after, and we just talk about all sorts of, similar to your podcast, it's kind of a hodgepodge of different conversations, but it's always connected somehow to evangelicalism. I love that because you go looking for one thing, like here, most people are like, oh, MLMs, I'm interested. And as I've learned in my life after MLM, it's not that cut and dry. Like there are so many other fingers in all of these pies and intersections in this Venn diagram. And so to be able to talk about those other things and say, oh, look, and this is how people take advantage of here. And this is why this is like this, the cult aspect, the religious aspect, the, you know, all of it, the, yeah. the con artist aspect of it, the scams. It's very interesting. And I think it's really cool that you guys are doing that in the evangelical space as well. It's a much needed conversation that I think people need to have. And as they are deconstructing and detoxing out of this, I, I don't think any day in the news like gets better where people are like oh whew, finally it's finally starting to die down like it's just more and more and I think it's pushing a lot more people to the side of starting to question things and so having podcasts like yours where you have the ability to to chat and, and to listen like this I think it's really important because people are looking to have those conversations and they don't know where they can have them in a safe space yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's been fun. We've had a lot of cool guests. We talk about all sorts of different things. Um, I think one time we actually discussed, I don't remember which episode it was, but we talked about what is it about evangelical churches that just seems like a magnet for MLMs. Oh, yes. Like there's something about the like evangelical culture and MLM culture that are very closely connected. <laughs> yeah. It's the salesman aspect, right? Because you guys are born and bred to knock on doors and sell God. True. And then it's really easy to just switch God for lipstick or vitamins. Yes. <laughs> That's so true. Right? Yeah. I mean, I was door knocking as a child. But now not only are you <laughs> not only are you selling lipstick and vitamins because there's this opportunity of income there for you, but you can also give other people the opportunity for income. So you're also saving them financially. That's so, oh, that's so true. <laughs> Although there is a little bit of like MLM, even in just like witnessing or, or like proselytizing yes. in Christianity, because I don't know how the jewel system works in heaven, but I remember being like, oh, well, if you do X amount of good things, you'll get extra jewels in your crown oh. when you're up in heaven or your mansion will be a little bit bigger. Yeah. The faith manipulation is in MLM as well, too. Absolutely. But then also, yeah, cool. you know... <laughs> The better you do here, the more God loves you, right? Like, so the better your place in heaven will be. So the more money you can make, the more God must love you. So you might as well join an MLM because that's apparently, according to all of the MLMers, the, the fastest growing industry in the world and the best way yeah. to become a millionaire and retire at 20. <laughs> Hashtag retired at 20. Totally. And you can give like, you can take 2% of your profits on those essential oils and donate it to your church and feel like you're right. giving back. <laughs> you're 10% tithing. You just add that right on. Yeah. That's the MLM aspect of religion. Totally. And then if you get into church planting and the whole ARC churches where you're opening up churches for churches to church, then oh. all of them get 10% too. And there's a whole MLM church thing going on. Your church needs a church to go to. Yeah. Who's pastoring your pastor? <laughs> Who's pastoring your pastor? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah. 
I think we should ask that more often. Who's pastoring? Your pa- it's 10 o'clock. Who's pastoring your pastor? That's what I want to know. <laughs> well, I just thank you so much for coming. I've got some questions for you, but before we hit those, okay. I want anybody who has absolutely fallen in love with you to know where they can find you. Sure. I am on TikTok and Instagram and X, formerly known as Twitter, and threads at April of Joy. That's just the month plus A-J-O-Y. And yeah, that's where you can find me. Or you can listen to Evangelicalish. Or if you're interested, me and my spouse, we did our, it's just one season podcast where we tell our entire story of how we went from being like very evangelical, cisgender, straight people identifying to like where we are now. Where we're openly a queer relationship and still Christian. And that's called the Non-Binary Marriage Podcast, if anybody's interested. It's its own thing. Oh, I'm excited about that. I'm going to throw all of those in the show notes so that people can find them a little easier. Yes. But let's do some rapid fire questions that don't always end up being very rapid. And I'm not sure why I keep calling them that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> One word that encompasses how you feel about evangelicalism. Gross. A a warning to anybody who is looking for a space and and thinks that white evangelical Christianity is the space for them. Okay. They will greet you with open arms and you will think that they are your family, but they are expecting you to conform to how they dress and how they think. And if you don't, you will be kicked out. What is the worst aspect of evangelicalism in your opinion? I think it's how they expect they expect people to be happy without being themselves. Wow. Yeah. Dang. Okay. <laughs> what is the hardest lesson you learned in evangelicalism? Oh, gosh. The hardest lesson. Like coming out of it? Lesson? Or being in it. The hardest part of, of the whole journey. I honestly think it was just realizing that the people and the beliefs that I had given my entire life to ended up being very harmful for other people and like recognizing that I was also perpetuating harm, even though I like unintentionally, but still like wasn't putting good into the world like I thought I was. And then give me a positive takeaway from your journey out of evangelicalism. So when you grow up, when you're in evangelical spaces, something that they talk a lot about is finding freedom in Christ. And they paint that as like, oh, finding true freedom in Christ is coming to this church and being in this community and doing life together and like, you know, all this stuff. But I think I've actually found that now after leaving evangelicalism and like realizing who I am and what I actually like and don't like and not just choosing things based on what I'm told I should and should not like that's actually freedom in Christ. And as I have got to know myself better, I feel like I've got to know a creator better too. And it's to me, like there's really something divine and special about just being your holy, authentic self. And there's something very sacred and holy about that. I never experienced inside the church that I experience now. I love that. That was beautiful. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for coming and having this conversation with me. You have been a requested interview for a while, and I am so glad we were able to connect and have this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I've thoroughly enjoyed your stuff from the distance and internet world, seeing seeing (laughs) yourself. And I saw you in the LuLaRoe documentary, too. I was like, she seems fun. I like her. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a good, I'm good people. (laughs) 
You are good people, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Life After MLM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. And follow us on social media at Life After MLM Podcast or visit our website at lifeaftermlmpod.com. You can find all of the links to follow in our show notes. Life After MLM is produced by Roberta Blevins. Audio editing is done by the lovely Kayla Craven. Video editing by the indescribable RK Gold. And Michelle Carpenter is our triple emerald princess of robots. If you have a story about a cult, fraud, scam, or MLM and want to be on the show, please hit us up. We would love to help you tell your story and start your healing journey in life after MLM. See you next time, Hans. Hans.